2: Well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Does picking an outfit have you running a little too fashionably late?
1: We get it. Great taste takes time. That's why Drizzly, the number one app for alcohol delivery, has your back with the largest selection of beer, wine, and spirits, delivered in under 60 minutes. Convenience never goes out of style, so if you need to spend some extra time in the mirror instead
2: of at the store, download the Drizzly app or go to drizzly.com. That's D-R-I-Z-L-Y dot com today.
1: This week on RVER, sponsored by Progressive Insurance. That new doctor is dropped at gorgeous. Please, he's
0: just another RV League-educated surgeon with good hair. No, he's different.
1: Nurses, we got a classy motorhome with a detached driver's side mirror. Meet me in the O.R., stat
0: right away no, Dr. no 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 she's on break i'll handle this one. Oh, you conniving little
1: when your rv really needs saving progressive has you covered see if you could save with a leader in rv insurance progressive casualty insurance company and affiliates covered subject to policy terms
0: welcome to let it roll the podcast about how and why popular music happens hosted by nate wilcox Follow the Let It Roll podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and Facebook, and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at LetItRollcast. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to all the other great Pantheon podcasts at www.PantheonPodcasts.com. Today, author Ted Joya returns to discuss his book, Music, A Subversive History. Ted and Nate discuss the tension between the social outsiders who've always been the source of musical innovation and the mainstream assimilators who borrow their ideas. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy.
2: It's time to let it roll. I'm your host, Nate Wilcox, and once again, I'm joined by Ted Joya, author of Music, A Subversive History. Welcome back, Ted. Well, thanks for having me on. And this is an incredible book. This, I mean, you are taking on some big issues—the whole breadth of musical history—but with a very specific angle and and trying to re-inject the subversiveness of it. Talk about that a little bit. Like, what is it you feel is missing from most musical histories that makes them so boring? There's been a
1: tremendous desire on institutions in our musical life to instill what we hear with respectability. You know, I've seen that firsthand in the jazz world, where jazz musicians wanted and deservedly so, they wanted to be respected, as did rock musicians, blues musicians and hip-hoppers. But there's a price that comes with respectability, which it changes the narrative of music. And we've seen this uh, in our own lifetimes. I mean, straight out of Compton, when that album came out, the FBI tried to stop it. Uh, now it's enshrined as one of the landmarks. Uh, and the Smithsonian is doing a hip-hop collection, and it's you know now considered a masterpiece. Look at Bob Dylan, who 50 years ago was a counterculture uh, leader, a rebel. Now he's a Nobel Prize laureate. Or you look at Paul McCartney and Mick Jagger, who were very feared by parents. Now they're Sir Paul McCartney and Sir Mick Jagger. And this is a transition that we've all seen, and we understand it. We understand that these rebels now have been sanitized, they've been purified, they're ready for mainstream culture. Now, what people don't realize is this has been happening for thousands of years. In fact, the musical world 500, 1,000, 2,000 years ago wasn't much different. And the accounts that have come down to us have been purified, they've been sanitized they've been made respectable. And when you actually dig into the, the real music history, much of which has been suppressed and censored, you find a very different story. So I wanted to share this different story of music history to show how subversive it's been, uh, how much music has changed society has even created human rights, uh, how much music has been disruptive, not just in our own times, but going back to the origins of music. And this, you know, a long project for me. I started researching this, actually, in the early 1990s. So when I, when I say it was difficult to uncover this real suppressed history of music, I'm not joking. This was a really uh, extraordinary effort I had to put in to unlocking the hidden chapters in our musical history.
2: And I think you you make this clear in the introduction when you say that a key theme of this book is that the shameful elements of songs, their links to sex, violence, magic, ecstatic trance, and other disreputable matters are actually sources of power serving as engines of innovation and in music making. And so you, you make it clear in this book there's a, a constant struggle between the forces of order that want to use music to control and want to sort of sanitize music, but they need, they desperately need these infusions of these disreputable, even shameful forces to keep music interested and keep people listening.
1: Well, it's interesting, you know, I've been talking to people who are involved in marketing my book and I say, don't be misled. There's a lot of my book on sex and violence, drugs and magic and superstition, and it's very colorful. But I, I said it's important to understand the reasons I put these into the book. I'm not trying to be flamboyant. I'm, I'm not trying to be gossipy. I, I'm not trying to, to, to put these into the book in order to sell copies, although it's great, it's great to sell copies. The reason these are important are these are the engines of change in music. These are the sources of innovation in music. Sex, violence, magic, altered mind states. And people don't realize it. They think this is just sort of an extra uh, add-on that sort of happens, and we've got to we've got to turn our 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 eyes away from it. But in fact, if you go back to the very origins of music, it came out of sex and violence. I mean, Darwin will tell you that uh, all music is sexual selection. We sing in order to mate, in order to fornicate. Other people will show, and, and with equal validity, that music early on helped bring people together, not just in love, but also in forming harmonies and, and, and bands of hunters. And so there was this, from the very start, music was inundated with sex and violence. Now, what happens in our music history books is that these are the embarrassing parts of music that you want to write out. Let's take, for example, the blues. The blues embodies everything I just mentioned, sex violence, supernatural elements. We heard the story of Robert Johnson selling his soul to the devil, altered mind states. I mean, all, all those things that are, that were perceived as disreputable and a lot of blues history tried to sanitize all this. And this is not just the blues, but if you go back a thousand years ago, you go back to Bach. I mean, everyone thinks Bach is such a respectable person, but do they know about Bach spending time in jail? Do they know about the disciplinary problems he called for his bosses, the extraordinary amount of drinking he had uh, attributed to him, him converting with a woman in the the choir loft and all these other stories that that you don't really find in the programs, the symphony. So there's a whole history of music because these elements that have been purified and, and have been eliminated from the historical accounts are important. They are the sources of energy and innovation and moving forward in music.
2: Yeah, and you say your aim is to celebrate music as a source of creation, destruction, and transformation. It's almost like music is the Hindu trinity of uh, Shiva and Vishnu and um, Brahma, I guess, the creator god. I mean, and, and that to me is a really powerful, vivid image, and you can't separate the creative power from the destructive power. You lose the power.
1: It's interesting. In our day and age, we tend to treat music as entertainment or as escapism or as as mere entertainment. You know, Steven Pinker, a very important philosopher, says music is nothing more than brain stimulation. He said that's the only purpose of music to stimulate the brain. It's not much different than taking a drink, having a martini or recreational drugs. And so we tend to minimize the power of music. But in fact, throughout most of history, Music had tremendous power. In fact, I would say that music was technology for societies that didn't have spaceships and semiconductors. I mean, if you go back into the ancient past, music preserved the community, not just the history of the community and songs, but you go look at the history of how music was used by hunting societies. Music was a tool to, to kill the prey. To put, music put dinner on the table that night. You look at music in cultivating societies, where literally it helped grow the crops. And I've studied at length the work songs of the agricultural societies and the herding societies. So for thousands of years, music was embraced not just because it was entertaining. Of course it was entertaining, but it had power. You know, it's interesting. If you look at Aristotle, in his book, The Politics, he talks about music. Now, this, on itself, is very surprising. Why does a book of politics talk about music? I mean, if you tuned into CNN on election night, you wouldn't expect to hear about songs. But in fact, Aristotle believes songs are very important. And he gives a long list of reasons why songs are important. You know, they, they build character, he They make work more tolerable. Uh, they help people in the day to day pursuit of their life goals. They bring the community together. He has a long list, and at the very end, he adds, and yes, they're entertaining. But for Aristotle, that's the last, that's the last thing. On. But it's almost like a uh, uh, by-the-way statement. Oh, yes, and also the entertaining. In our society, we tend to look at the entertainment, but we forget the power. The power is extraordinary. The power still exists today. So one of the main purposes of my book is to show the history of music as the source of power, which can be creative, it can be destructive. Often it's
2: both. And, and you take on a number of, uh, you know, scholars and thinking, you mentioned Pinker and this idea that's been popularized in a number of popular books recently that, you know, music is a neurological phenomenon and and it exists within the brain. But there's also a phenomenon within ethnomusicologists who want to reject the notion that there's any sort of universality to music, that when these anthropologists study a tribe's music, they insist that this is a totally unique thing, unique to this tribe. And you say that that's coming from a good place, but Ultimately, to understand music, we have to, to, you know, we're all human. All of our music is, is hitting certain things, certain principles that you say are discovered, like things like the circle of fifths or basic tuning, that, that there's a reality out there that all human beings are grappling with and discovering. Why was it so important to you to, to reject this notion that musical's not music is not universal?
1: Well, you know, as I mentioned, I've been researching these elements of music history for decades now. And I kept running into these coincidences that just were inexplicable. You'd find a style of music in one part of the world, and its similarities to a style thousands of miles away were so striking. Probably the first time I encountered this was when I was studying the music of the shamans. I mean, these were sort of the magical priests that would use music to get to an altered mind state and to cure people. They would go into a trance, often inspired by a drum, over the course of the trance, they would go to the other world, and then they would try to cure the ailment of, of of someone who'd come to them for help. And the first shamans that were documented are in places like Siberia. Uh, and if you look at the practices they have, they're very similar to what you find in Native American communities uh, in the United States. Now, that's explicable because many people will say, well, uh, Native Americans originally migrated from Russia over the, the the frozen ice in the Americas. And so, okay, you can explain that in terms of migration, but then you see the same practices among the Aboriginal communities in Australia. I mean, they're almost identical in terms of the, the way they use the rhythm, the healing practices. You find these in South Africa too. You find them in shamans in Korea and, and all over Asia. At a certain point, I started asking myself, why is, why are these things happening? And I found these in, in a host of other, I mean, I could, I could spend hours just talking about these seeming coincidences. And when I went to ethnomusicologists, they would tell me, oh, you can't look at that. You can't study that, it's wrong to study that. Well, why is it wrong to study? Well, you've got to treat each culture as independent, as incommensurable. You can't make comparisons. It's an insult to the musical culture to compare. Now, I found this puzzling, but over the last 20, 30 years, we had an enormous amount of research coming from outside of music, neuroscience, cognitive psychology, uh, some other historical fields, linguistics, that show the same thing, this universality. And so now you have a conflict going on. And the funny thing is these two sides never talk. They work at the same universities. You go to the ethnomusicologists in the music department, and they'll tell you that there are no comparisons to be made between these musical cultures, that everyone is unique go across campus to the neuroscientists, and they'll say, we're unlocking the universal aspects of music in the human brain. So there's a divide here, and it's interesting that there's a divide no one's even talking about. And, and, you, and these, these communities don't communicate. So one of the things I try to show in my book, how much we can learn when you view music, not just from what happens in the music department, but from these broader fields of learning.
2: And you, you've got a an appendix to the book that you call This is Not a Manifesto, but it's effectively a manifesto. It's got about 40 <laughs> points. And the second point uh, sums this up. You say, music is universal to the same extent that people have comparable needs, aspirations, biological imperatives, and evolutionary demands on their behavior. Refusing to acknowledge the universally universal qualities in the community's music is akin to denying it membership in the broader human community. And I think that sums it up. And let me play our first snippet. This is an anthropologist playing uh, a rock gong. This is a naturally occurring rock, not altered in any way, and it makes music. And that was an anthropologist playing a, a rock as a gong. And this is one of the things that you describe in the book that human beings evolved in a world of sound. And and you you've got a story that you cite in the book of a of a Native American uh, telling an, an, a a European settler. You know you, you're deaf to the music of the world and taking him to a place where by a pond where he can hear with the wind blowing to the reeds, and hear tunes naturally occurring. And this is a theme that, that you expand on throughout the book, that there are certain fundamental principles of sound and the way the human body responds to these sounds that are not invented, they're discovered.
1: It's important to realize how different music is from most other art forms. We tend to think of art as a human construct. So a filmmaker makes a film or uh, someone who wants to do a video game, the team of them get together and construct a video game or a comic book or, you know, a, a painting or whatever. But the whole idea is that these are human constructs. And because they're human constructs, we tend to look them at them in a certain way. But is it possible, I ask, that music is actually something we discovered. was already there. These musical sounds already existed. And it's quite likely that our ancestors decided to put them into use. I and mean, it's very interesting, all of the musical instruments came out of nature. Generally, they came out of things people killed in the hunt. The instrument was either made out of the bone of the animal or the hide of the animal or the or the weapon we used to kill it. You know, the mu- the musical uh, bow was originally the hunter's bow. It turned into a musical instrument. And then we take the horn of the animal, it becomes a musical horn. The guts of the animal become the string for the string instruments. And so there's this whole idea you see, of of people trying to tap into the power of the natural world with their music. I think the earliest hunting songs were probably imitations of, of of animal sounds. People don't realize how important sound was for the hunter. If you go back to prehistoric times, you could go through your whole life and never hear one really loud sound. Maybe if you walked by a waterfall, that would be a loud sound. Or maybe during a a thunderstorm. But most of your life, you've never heard a loud sound. So imagine when the first groups of hunters got together and started singing, singing in unison. In fact, there's a um, theory of, of early hunting societies that say the early human hunters were actually scavengers. What they did is they waited for the large animal to kill the prey, and they would scare off that animal with their singing. And then they would eat the food instead. If that's true, <laughs> choral music is is the the foundation of our economies and our economic lives. So these are, are are important things to know, and they show that music is not a human construct. It's a powerful thing out there in the universe that we're able to tap into, and it helps us understand the real role of music in life in our society.
2: and then, as music, as our societies evolved, our music, our uses of music evolved with it. you you point out that, Herders use an entirely different sort of music than hunters, that they sing songs to soothe, and you connect this to country and Western. I just thought that was fascinating.
1: Well, it's very interesting. At a certain point in history, society divided into two. There were the hunters that had to constantly travel around to find animals, and then there were the people that wanted to settle in one place. And they would cultivate crops, and they would herd animals. They would keep the animals by them. And so you'd have your own cow. You wouldn't have to go out hunting. You'd have your food source near you. And so these are two cultures. There's the nomadic one, the warrior on the road, and then the stay at home. Uh, and I'd like to suggest that, that, that this is sort of like a counterpart to, the, to rock music and, and country music. But the larger truth here, and this gets back to what I was saying before about these patterns. You know, I was studying these herding societies around the world and their music. And their music had these amazing similarities. No matter where you were, South America or Asia or, or Central Europe. And I remember I was talking to an ethnomusicologist that had lived in a herding community. And I said, What about these patterns I'm seeing? He Oh, they don't. He, he, he dismissed me. They don't exist. It's, it's wrong. And, you know, once again, these communities are, are incommensurable, you can't compare them. And it's surprising how long it took me to figure it out. But when I figured it out, it was obvious. These musical similarities were actually dictated by the animals. This is why you don't have drums in herding communities. <laughs> the drums scare the animals. This is why you have, food, like you have pan pipes and gentle string music in the herding communities, because this is the music that soothes the cattle. Or the camels, or the goats, or the sheep, or whatever it is you're herding, and so it's very interesting. That once again, you see this universal trend in music. You see it denied by the ethnomusicological community that should be the one that should be pointing this out, but because of their biases, they refuse to. And then, curiously enough, you see a pattern in later day, even in later day, when you talk about pastoral music. Well, that means pasture and animals, but it's it, it also refers to a kind of gentle music, the pastoral symphony by Beethoven. And I'll point out even in country music, they wouldn't let drums into the grand old Opry for decades. So was this idea that country music is sort of a evocation of the sortings. This is the music for the people that stay at home in the country rather than go off and do the migration to the city. So that I mean, that's a much more complicated issue, but it's a depth in the book that these same things you find in the distant past echo divides and trends in the current day.
2: And and after people you know, evolved from hunting to herding, then they become civilized and start living in cities. And that's when we we see the first written notation for music that goes back to the Sumerians. I'll play a little bit of that later. And we do this for a couple thousand years, but then there's another breakthrough with in the Greeks with Pythagoras and the Chinese with Confucius, where we not only have intuited these principles, but now we can articulate these principles. And, and so people like Pythagoras try to use our understanding of these truths to impose order on music and and you in your manifesto it's it's point uh, points 19 and 20 and i'll quote you around the time of pythagoras and confucius an epistemological rupture took place that attempted to remove magic and trance from the sphere of acceptable musical practices explain what you mean by that a little bit
1: well, it's probably best seen in, in our own culture. You know, Western culture, we we tend to trace it back to the Greeks. who We view as very rationalistic people. And this is sort of the idea that philosophy, you have like Plato and Aristotle, and rational thinking prevailed. Uh, and that's a, whole, I mean, that's a whole different debate for a different time. But there was an attempt around that period to create a very mathematical and scientific approach to music. And this manifested itself particularly in this, these endless debates on tuning. How do you, what are the scales? What are the correct scales? How do you tune it? And it really devolved into mathematics. So you have Pythagoras, who's both a, a mathematician, and we, we still look at his uh, theorem in geometry, but he was also the person who devised these tuning systems in the Western world. And even earlier, back in Mesopotamia, you had these. But the idea is to make music subservient to mathematics. Now, this is great, because once you tune everything, you can write it down. You can have notation. But you the, the tuning systems leave out enormous amounts of things, most notably the sounds between the notes. I mean, when you, when you say this is an A and this is a B, well, what about the sounds between A and B? And it's interesting that as the West went into this tuning mathematical mentality, in Africa they never bought into this. They bent notes. And, and that's why when... The African-American infusion in the United States uh, started influencing music. It was a revolution. The blues musicians bent notes. They had notes in the scale that shouldn't be in the scale. And it was, it was intoxicating. It was extraordinary for a hundred years. This rejection of the this mathematical approach to music revolutionized first American music and then world music. And this is, once again, it's a tension that really is never talked about. The tension, is music a kind of mathematics, or is uh, music, this is probably the best way to put it, is music made up of notes or made up of sounds? And depending on how, it's extraordinary implications for your musical culture. But once again, these are issues that are not talked about, yet they shaped thousands of years of music history and music culture. We need to explore them again today, especially today when this whole subservience of music to algorithms is the same thing all over again. We're going to have certain rules, scientific rules, that dictate our musical culture.
2: We need to be you, honest about this. And in your discussion of Pythagoras, you you point out that this coincided or was followed by an attempt to not just impose order on music and rationality, but to strip it of the feminine of what we call the feminine elements, uh, aspects of of trance, uh, sexuality, and mourning. I was fascinated that 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 laments were long seen as as something that the the male hierarchy tried to downplay and oppress.
1: You know, it's interesting. If you go back in history, there are certain types of songs that are associated with women. Yeah. And and these are the same songs that are always left out of the history books for some reason. Let me give you an obvious example, a lullaby. Since the beginning of time, mothers have been singing songs to their babies. And so this is an extraordinary genre of music, maybe the oldest genre of music of them all. Uh, And it's been dominated by women for thousands of years. But when have you seen a book? on the musical vullabies. <laughs> you it know, doesn't exist. Is, you know, I did a book on the history of the love song. It's the same thing. Women were associated with innovations in love songs, and then these same songs were suppressed. For a thousand years in Europe, not a single love song in the vernacular language was preserved. Yet we know they were there because the church attacked them constantly. Sermons, church proclamations, the Pope would say something. And curiously enough, whenever they attacked these love songs, they always mentioned women, that women were the ones singing these songs. They had to be suppressed because these sinful women were singing the songs. And the lament is the last one. I call them the three L's, the lullaby, the love song, the lament. The lament also was associated with women. Uh, they would sing at a funeral. Someone died. They would sing. And, 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 the, and the, the authorities hated these songs. They hated these laments. And you had to ask yourself, what is so wrong about singing for someone who's 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 died as part of mourning and grief but they feared the emotional excess because you know music stirs up emotions the best music always stirs up emotions and authority figures have always feared this i mean it's happening today i I mean i hardly a day goes by when i don't read about some band being suppressed by putin in russia or china north korea or in some part of the middle east even today the authority figures fear these elements of music and as my book shows up a lot of them come out of traditions created by women and often left out of our music history books
2: and let's hear that melody i referenced earlier this is the oldest known human melody this is the hurry and hymn number six dating back to to the fertile crescent in mesopotamia this is hurry and hymn number six that we have and and this was a thousand years before pythagoras and it sort of shows that we were understanding how to make music long before we constructed music theory but another element that you consistently talk about that we've touched on a little bit is the way that every time authorities try to impose order on music they sort of drain the life out of it whether it's renaissance music guilds imposing such strict standards of performance that people that they lose their audience because You know, sort of like uh, the Simon Cowell singing contest songs we had a spate of in the early 21st century. That the constraints are so limited, like you said, that you know John Lennon or Kurt Cobain or certainly Sid Vicious would never have won uh, one of these, you know, uh, singing with the stars type contests. So we know, you know, that that the music needs these infusions from outsiders, and this is a point that you bring back, come back to in the manifestos, and like you mentioned before. African Americans ended up being the biggest musical infusion of outsiders. One thing I thought was fascinating in the book that had never occurred to me was that in the late 19th century, it seemed like cabaret songs would be the source of that innovation. There's, you know, the 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 demimonde of Europe, the the underbelly, uh, the decadence, and these are the art songs. But the the revolution came from a totally unexpected direction.
1: And that's the recurring theme, is that the revolution always comes from the place you don't expect it, and it always comes from the outsider. It always comes from the outsider. If you look at the ancient Greeks, you'd be amazed at how much of their important music came out of slaves. In fact, even today, if you're a music student, you're taught the Lydian mode and the Phrygian mode. These are building block scales in music education, but no one tells you that the Lydians and Phrygians were Greek slaves. These were the the uh, nationalities of the people that were enslaved and made the music. In Rome, slaves had such a powerful impact that often they were the only ones allowed to perform music in a number of settings. And you get into the, the Islamic world, the female slave singers there really anticipated much of the Troubadour Revolution. So there's this long history of outsiders and, and bohemians and underclass, marginalized people, slaves, the disempowered creating musical revolutions. And the question is, why is this? And the reason is actually, should be pretty obvious when you look at it is, well, the outsider has the least to gain by upholding the status quo. If I'm a slave, what care do I have to preserve the culture? I will shake up the culture. I have no allegiance to the culture. And so again and again, you have these exciting new sounds coming out of of slave and underclass populations. Now let's bring that into the modern world. In the year 1900, if I had taken some experts on music, and I said, predict the next hundred years of music, I think almost all of them would have said, we've got to look to the European cabarets. You know, the Berlin cabarets, the Paris cabarets, that music is exciting, it's innovative, it's fresh, it's different, and once again, a lot of it reflected the underclass of uh, Europe. And the cabarets were the one place where the ruling class and the underclass could rub shoulders in these communities. But in fact, they were proven wrong because they underestimated the power of the African-American influence in the Americas. In the year 1900, you heard almost none of it. American popular songs were very boring in the late 19th century. I've studied these songs. I can tell you, uh, you can't imagine how tedious American popular music was back then. These love songs, no one would even hug or kiss. That was taboo. You couldn't hug or kiss in a song. So all you could say is, I feel a great regard for you, my darling. I mean, you just, the sentiments there are stale and cliched and sentimental. And then, though, this African-American influence came in, especially when you get to the blues, where for the first time in history, you had Frank singing in the United States about sexuality, violence, infidelities, all these conflicts that had never been sung about before. You can't imagine how liberating that was for people to hear. And it took 50 to 60 years until that spread into mainstream popular music, but it was inevitable that was going to happen. And then it spread all over the world because this is what people want. They want that energy of innovation. They want that frankness that reminds them of their everyday life. And as the end result, America dominated the popular music of the 20th century, but it was because of its underclass. It wasn't because of its ruling class, who often were more surprised than anybody at how this played out.
2: And and there's these waves of innovations and and new stylizations that you get, you know, the first popular music explosion in America influenced by African Americans is ragtime and the the correlated coon songs, which, you know, were syncopated melodies and frequently hideously racist Mm -hmm. lyrics sometimes written by African Americans. Um, and then, and then that evolves into jazz and and then that evolves into swing and rhythm and blues and rock and roll and, and on into hip hop. But now we're at a point where it sort of seems like that series of innovations has sputtered to a stop. I mean, hip hop started to emerge in the late seventies was a popular music by the eighties was a dominant form of music by the late nineties. Do you, what, what's going on now? Well, that's
1: that's a great question. And I'll, I'll make a couple observations. One is there's a whole history in music when things come to a halt, or seems very peaceful and that everybody has their own little music that they like and that that's the way it's going to be forever. People thought that in the 1930s, the early 1930s, you had the start of the Depression, everybody wanted happy songs. So you had sort of these love songs and novelty songs and... Uh, it wasn't very disruptive, but five years later, you had swing jazz just take over the, the country in a matter of months. Everybody wanted something hot, exciting, and disruptive. Same thing happened in the early 1950s. You had all these these gentle pop tunes and novelty songs and sort of these mood music in the background in the music industry. So we found the formula. Everybody wants this gentle music to, to create a comfortable home lifestyle. Five, six years later, you had rock and roll, which disrupted everything again. And the same thing happened in the early 70s with the gentle single singer-songwriters, which were supplanted by punk and disco. We might be in one of those periods now where there's something disruptive that's just around the corner. But that's my, my sense is that there's some disruption coming to music that's going to surprise all of us. And let me make one more observation on this. What a lot of people see right now is the disruption is happening to music now. In the old days, music disrupted the society. Some people will say, well, now we've reversed it. Society disrupts music because you have Apple controls music and Google and YouTube. The five largest companies in the world now control what music everybody hears and they're going to put in algorithms so that artificial intelligence will tell us what songs to listen to. and So there's this whole idea that, once again, we're going to be subserving into this algorithmic, mathematical, scientific management of our musical life. Let me just say, I don't believe that's going to happen. Based on my studying of the last 4,000 years of music history, that will not happen at all. In fact, the people who think they understand now this smooth, uh, uh, predictable lifestyle consumer driven way of managing people's musical lives will be very surprised at how things play out i can't predict the details but i can see the big picture there will be a disruption and it will come before people realize Um
2: and for the next uh, song sample, I, this is a perfect example of the phenomenon you call legitimization, where you have these disruptions, and they come from outsiders, and they're and they're very upsetting, and they tie music back to its roots as a force. You know, there's elements of sexuality and violence and trance and 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 you know a dissonance from the the dominant culture, and so this is. But then there's a process where these, these wild outsiders are tamed and brought into the institutions. And this, to me, is just a perfect example. This is Wynton Marsalis, the doyen of the Lincoln Jazz Center, playing Buddy Bolden's, Buddy Bolden's Funky Butt, which was one of the first jazz songs. So this is the process. This is legitimization in action. This is Wynton Marsalis playing Funky Butt. was Wynton Marsalis uh, taking on Buddy Bolden's Funky Butt and to me you just can't find a better illustration of this phenomenon of music that emerges from the brothels of New Orleans from a total outsider a man who was never even recorded as far as we know Buddy Bolden and died in a madhouse. and the music's now been quote-unquote elevated to Lincoln Center by Wynton Marsalis who is at the absolute you know top of our culture somebody who lectures and and Fundraises and is on TV and telling us, and and it feels pretty lifeless in a lot of ways. What's been lost in this transformation?
1: Well, this song is a great example of what I'm trying to convey. If you look at jazz now, as I mentioned, there's a great quest for respectability, and it's been institutionalized. And and these institutions do a lot of good. Jazz at Lincoln Center does a lot of good for jazz. Uh, SF Jazz, the Monterey Jazz Festival, these major record labels... Uh, and now jazz is moving into universities, and I think that's a good thing, too. And and But once again, it institutionalizes and, and makes respectable the jazz art form. But if you go back to this song, Funky Butt, it's an eye-opener. This is, by all accounts, the first jazz song. If you had to pick the first jazz song, this is it. Because we're told Buddy Bolden invented jazz, and this was his trademark song. Now, what do we know about this song? First of all, we know that he used it to make political satires and insult politicians. We know that he changed the lyrics when he sang it from time to time to bring in current events. We know that it got you into tremendous problems if you sang this. You know, Sidney Bechet's told a story about if you sang it, the police would come and hit you on the head and and cart you off to jail. I mean, literally, if you sang the first jazz tune, you could go to jail for that. So look at the contrast between the origins of the music and how it's depicted nowadays. You have jazz now, which is treated as respectable art form, and it deserves this respect. But you, when you start to falsify the historical record, you cease to understand what this music is all about. And the point I make in my book is the example I've just given you with Funky Bud. This has happened over and over again. And it goes into the opera tradition, it goes into the symphony tradition, it goes into the folk music tradition, it goes into the troubadour tradition, goes into the lyric poetry tradition. Wherever you look, you see the same transformation. A style that was disruptive gets purified and sanitized, but, and this is the most important thing of all, the legitimization itself is a source of distortion. Now I'm not saying it's bad, I think it's inevitable. I think all musical styles get legitimized. You know, hip-hop is getting legitimized. Now, I think this is inevitable. We can't hide ourselves from the larger truth that when we focus too much on this legitimization, we fail to understand the power of music, the origins of music, and we fail to predict how music might evolve in the future and how we can use that power for our own good, our own benefit, and our own cultural uplifting.
2: And one insight you have in the book that you share is – that this notion that if the legitimization process is rushed, that there's frequently disastrous consequences. And you tie this to you know the early deaths of figures like Sid Vicious and Kurt Cobain and Tupac Shakur and Biggie Smalls. What's going on there? Why is it when, when a new form of music goes from the outside to the inside too fast that, that there's a bloody price to pay? Well, one of the things I realize
1: is this process of legitimization takes time typically around a generation, maybe 30 to 50 years. You know, for example, and this is throughout history, chanting was invented as a religious practice uh, by uh, Benedict and the Benedictine order, monks. Exactly 50 years later, it was embraced by Pope Gregory, and we now call it Gregorian chant. It was originally disruptive, and then it becomes legitimate. And there's also this 50-year cycle. In, in in the 1960s, Bob Dylan is a member of the counterculture. Exactly 50 years later, he becomes a Nobel Prize laureate. Sometimes it's a little faster. Sometimes it's a little slower. Sometimes if you, As I've studied it through history, sometimes it can happen in 25, 35 years. But, you know, 40, 50, 60 is more like it. Now, here's the problem. Here's the problem. The music industry at a certain point didn't understand this. But then they learned about it. By the time you get to the 1970s the music industry now realizes they need these disruptive sounds so someone like Sid Vicious and the Sex Pistols okay we're going to make him into a commercial entertainer <laughs> well it doesn't it doesn't work out that way huh you know it's not easy to turn Sid Vicious into a commercial entertainer kurt cobain kurt cobain's a perfect example kurt cobain's destiny was to be on the fringes of culture as making comments on the mainstream culture, as a critic of the mainstream culture. But MTV needed him for ratings. So there's a whole push to turn Kurt Cobain into the voice of his generation and a a mainstream entertainer. I think that contributed to his death. Go read Kurt Cobain's suicide note on the basis of what I just told you, and you'll see what he writes there This this whole idea that we've got to mainstream it and legitimize it really quickly to make a buck is dangerous. It's dangerous to the people that make it. It's dangerous to the culture. Sometimes culture needs an outsider voice that's not part of the mainstream. So yes, this is a, a, once again, these are the kind of themes I raise in my book that I think are important ones, but you almost never hear raised in music history books. So I'm trying to look at these larger pictures and, and I show that they repeat again and again over a period of hundreds, even thousands of years.
2: And in the in the book you you towards the end you talk about our current predicament and, and the situation now where on the one hand there's literally thousands of genres. You talk about I think it was Spotify decides to define every possible music genre and comes up with a list of over almost fifteen hundred categories. But you describe this as like sort of an illusion of choice, like walking into a microbrewery where you've got, you know, seven hundred types of craft beer, but no, But uh, let's see, the quote is, there's an illusion of unconstrained choice in a circumscribed environment where the whole selection process is stringently controlled and surprises are kept to a minimum.
1: Well, if you go to places like Spotify, they think they've covered it all. And they do. They think, you know, we're on top of everything no matter what kind of genre you like, whether you like Christmas shoegaze, uh, disco songs, or folk music played on upside down ukuleles or people blowing out of the wrong end of the saxophone, whatever it is, we've got it here. We've got to categorize. We've got more than a thousand genre categories. Hey, but the revolution is not going to take place on Spotify. I'll tell you that right now. Once again, it's, once again, it's the illusion that if you can reduce everything to a rule and figure out exactly what people like and then deliver it to them, you will succeed. But the history of music shows that what people really want out of the musical culture, especially young people want, is something disruptive. They don't want something that has been customized to a a mathematically defined taste. And it's often impossible to predict the exact nature of the disruption. But the whole history of music, and once again, I've outlined this going back to 4,000, 5,000 years, shows that this is where the energy and innovation comes from. And it's often, like I say, it comes from shameful places, sex and violence, altered mind states, supernatural beliefs, the whole nine yards. And this is something that the tech companies that are trying to streamline our musical culture, I don't think can grasp. Their very nature prevents them from grasping it. But I think historical results will show that they don't understand the basic engine of the music industry they're trying to control.
2: And And after you discuss this Fragmentation into many, many micro genres. You talk about fundamentally in pop music, there's there's four, maybe five dominant forms, and you tie each of these forms back to one of our sort of primal needs for music. You've got pop, which you link to sexuality and the fertility uh, the tradition of music being linked to fertility songs you've got rock which ties into the whole uh sacrificial scapegoat right the 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 birth and death the death and rebirth cycle of of the hero you've got country which ties back to the herders and the and the pastoral uh need for calm and order and and that's our most traditional pocket and then hip-hop which which um goes back to our you know monophonic town criers of sort that the people that tell us what's going on and then the fifth one which isn't quite which hasn't quite broken through and and your argument about it kind of made me realize that it can't in a way as long as the format is what we call electronic dance music edm which ties into these trances and ritual states. You know, in the '90s, there was a whole moral panic about uh, drugs and raves, and 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 a real effort by the authorities to crush this stuff, but it, it failed. And you and you saw artists like Skrillex and and others, you know, Daft Punk break through mostly as remixers. And I think I think you you bring out why it is that we haven't really had an EDM superstar. That that it's a function of Uh, these dance music producers enhancing pop or rock music. The others are the stars because this music is happening outside of Spotify. You can't replicate the experience of going – to Burning Man or, or a big rave and hearing the music so loud and there's no focal point, there's no performer on stage, there's a DJ hidden away. The, the the show is the dancers that people are part of and the sound system, you know, you cannot replicate that in your earbuds. No matter how much you listen to house the history of house music or acid house or techno or electro funk on your Spotify, you're never going to replicate the experience of hearing it in a dance club or at a rave.
1: Well, you're exactly right, and, and, and it's interesting. Obviously, the styles of music change. Now, they change dramatically, but the underlying human needs they address don't change. So take back these shamans I told you about who thousands of years ago used music to get into an altered mind state, into a trance. Well, the great EDM events and the raves are the same thing. Now, obviously, the music is different, but there's a, there's a fundamental human need to, 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 to tap into altered mind states. It's a fun, and I mean, I speak that as 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 someone. I'm like the least drug-oriented person you're going to find, but still, I understand there's a, a a basic human imperative to expand your consciousness. Now, here's here comes the, the 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 trouble is everybody wants to turn music into a commodity and a product, but you can't. Hey, you're right. You can't turn a rave into a digital download. You can't turn Burning Man into a digital download. And yet, this is how revealing it is. And you know, I talk about these sacrificial rites and the violence at the origins of music. And people say, Ted, is that still happening? I go, why do they call it Burning Man? You know, why do they burn an effigy? I mean, if you, you go to these events, and if you understand the heritage and tradition, everything makes perfect sense. Now, the people in the music industry trying to commoditize them are struggling, is can you turn an experience into uh, an algorithm or digital data? And the answer is no. So you're right, this explains both why EDM hasn't taken off as, I mean, EDM really could be the dominant sound of a whole generation. And it might be, but there's these difficulties because the people who want to make money off everything, it's hard to make, it's hard to make money off these kind of intangible experiences. Um, so, but, the, but the, the, the larger picture is that these same human needs, they always need to be addressed. And when the musical culture does not address it for people, people find another way to it.
2: And it's time for my last musical snippet, and this is one that you didn't talk about in the book, but but you talked about the topics that are raised. This is Jay Dilla's Waves off of his Donut album. This is Jay Dilla Waves off the Donut album. And that was Jay Dilla doing his song waves. The late Jay Dilla died in 2006. And and this is somebody that I picked in part because friend of the show Dan Charnas, uh, is working on a biography of Jay Dilla and he's arguing that the, Jay Dilla is you know the third great figure in American music after Louis Armstrong who who uh, introduced, you know, improvisation and and then uh, I'm blanking on who introduced swing and then Jay Dilla because he takes the human element back from the drum machine. Before Jay Dilla, everybody, no matter how innovative or funky they were with their drum machine, would stay with the locked pattern. So it was always on the beat. And this is very different from hearing a recording of a human drummer, You know, whether it's Buddy Rich or John Bonham. There's always irregularities in the performance of a human drummer, even the most perfect or best drummer. And Jay Dilla took his drum machines, turned off the quantization broke and played the drums by hand on his drum machine and, and inter- reintroduces this irregularity of rhythm. And so I think this is part of the hope that, that we, once again, the force of music and the force of humanity can break this digital control that's being tried to impose on us.
1: Well, it's a perfect example. You know, As I mentioned, there's, there's always been this tension between the idea of music as human expression and music as something that follows mathematical rules and we live nowadays in an uh, age of technology or it's digital technology i mean literally it's mathematically driven technology that's supposed to create our musical environment but what history shows us is that musicians always subvert the technology and the whole birth of hip-hop is subverting technology and people were using turntables and sound systems and drum machines to do things they were not intended to do i see the same thing happening with auto-tune now which people are using in ways never envisioned by the of the the folks that invented it. But this has always been the case. You know, the microphone was originally introduced just as a way of amplification. But jazz musicians showed that once they had a microphone, they could speak differently. They could sing in more nuanced, whispery ways. And so it's it's crazy, the same microphone technology that allows like a fascist leader like Mussolini to come to power is now used in America as a tool of individualistic expression. And so the whole history and and hip-hop going back hundreds, even thousands of years show this, is that people try to impose a technology or an algorithm or a mathematical set of rules on the music, but the human element in the music resists that, and it almost always comes from the outsider or from the least expected place. Which in the case of hip-hop, I'll point out, Really came of birth, you know, ten, twenty miles away from the headquarters of the leading music companies in the world, and they weren't even aware it was happening until. I mean, it took a whole host of indie labels to do this. So this this tells you how easy it is to miss the innovation. It could be happening right under your nose, and and you can be unaware of it.
2: And so, Ted, the book is music: a subversive history, and. Uh, This, uh, honestly, has given me a framework for this whole project with the Let It Roll podcast that we're doing, and a lens through which to see music history. So thank you very much. I'm going to be drawn on this in every episode going forward.
1: Well, thank you very much, Nate. Thank you for having me on.
0: Follow the Let It Roll podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and Facebook, and check out our website at letitrollpodcast.com. Follow us on Twitter at Let it roll cast. This is the end of our 6th season, but we'll be back in December with a new set of We Dig Mike Judge's Tales from the Tour Bus, and our 7th season will start in early 2020. Let it roll is a Pantheon podcast and you can listen to all the other great Pantheon podcasts at www.pantheonpodcasts.com. Music, A Subversive History, is published by Basic Books. Please support our show by ordering via the Amazon referral link on our website, letitrollpodcast.com. Got it.
1: Quote with Progressive and see if you could save with America's number one motorcycle insurer. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates.